Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Bricklane Brewing. We are grateful for Bricklane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also, the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe, and then you'll never miss a video. In cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are. But thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of The Final Word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and The Final Word. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It's The Final Word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, back for a weekly show after a couple that we've taken off due to the T20 World Cup which has been run and won. We will talk about Australia's victory in a little bit, although not too much. We did that on The Daily Show, Jeff, back on Sunday. Thanks to everybody who listened and watched those over the course of the last two or three weeks. Uh, We have Taha Hashim and Nikesh Fragani joining us today for a long conversation about the Azim Rafiq saga, but an awful lot more too about institutional racism in cricket in this country and beyond. We have a bit to talk about around what we're doing with our live shows, Jeff, which I can announce off the top today. But before doing any of that, hello, Jeff, and look what I've got. I'm going to say down the Zoom screen. Check this out. This is the Brazil playing kit. We have been both sent kindly by Matt 
and by Roberta, the playing shirt and the cap of the Brazil women's national team, <laughs> um, which I will wear proudly. So I'm going to pack one of those or a shirt and a hat in mm-hmm. my suitcase to bring back to you, Jeff, when I depart for Australia in three days. Hello. Well, pack, t- pack two of them, I hope, because then we can wear them together. Yes. Um, and and <laughs> fully realise our, our destiny to be as embarrassing as possible. Um, we can... We can know, uh... I mean, if only... If Winnie were a bit older, we could we could do it w- well, with her in public. she's got to, that, hasn't she? Re- uh, we, we, we received for her... Uh, we received for her a, a baby Bangladesh top. Not a baby Bangladesh top, a, 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 a bra withering. The smallest possible. Yeah, sent yeah. through a, a, a small top Bangladesh for her. So we can all wear green together at some point, but Brazil for you and me. Yeah, Brian Withington was for, was very, very sharp with that purchase. It was an investment in the future. And a good yeah. one, and a good one at that. Um, I, I see that uh, Brazil are one of many countries who have been awarded uh, global tournaments uh, in the last uh, 24 hours or so. Jeff, let's start there. We have seen the entire ICC men's calendar from 2024 mm-hmm. to 2031 Announced, And if you fold in the 2023 Men's World Cup next year, that means India cash into the tune of four tournaments in eight years and five in ten. If you count the World T20, uh, they've just hosted, albeit in the UAE. They've done very well. But the main news story, I suppose, was that the United States of America, alongside the West Indies, are hosting the Men's T20 World Cup in 2024. Five in ten years. Yep, they definitely needed that. India. It's all about the co-hosts because that's how the ICC have have made it look like this is a bit more democratic. Oh, West Indies and the USA. They'll get there'll be three games probably in Fort Lauderdale or whatever it's called. The 2026 T20 competition will be India and Sri Lanka. So Sri Lanka will get like three games in Gaul or or something. Uh, Bangladesh get a co-hosting gig, couple of games in Dhaka. It's a bit of a whitewash, this isn't it? Uh, the the only real change from the England, Australia, India get all the tournaments is that South Africa will get the major 50-over World Cup in 2027 to be shared with Namibia and Zimbabwe. But, yeah, the rest of it's just been um, a little bit cheekily spread around. Oh, 2030, oh, it'll be England and Ireland and Scotland. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there'll be heaps of games in Dublin. I mean, they're predictable, aren't they? And they've junked off the, the one-day Super League that meant that some of the bigger teams had to play some of the smaller teams uh, because, you know, well, we don't really need that anymore. We tried that for a couple of years, no good. Yeah, this was slipped in there. So, I mean, obviously we uh, celebrate the fact that the World Cup returns to 14 teams in 2027. No concerns with that, but that's the justification to get rid of the 13-team Super League. And yes, it is true to say the Super League did underpin the qualifying schedule for a 10-team World Cup. That is accurate. No questions there. However, it also gave men's one-day cricket some structure in the way that women's one-day cricket has had some structure over the last six years. And it also meant that, frankly, they had no choice but to play teams they wouldn't otherwise play. The very fact that England have to go and play three one-day internationals in Holland next year, for instance. There are many examples like that of series that would have never have gone ahead and can only be helpful to nations who made the 13 but aren't getting loads of opportunities against the bigger nations. Holland's a good example this time, but the, the level below it, 
that had the USA in it, for example, able to play consistent one-day international cricket for the first time. Presumably that entire structure gets junked in favour of the top 10 teams qualifying and the next four having a qualifying tournament. In other words, basically what we're getting mm. uh, with the men's T20 at the moment. So they'll get you know two weeks of concentrated cricket in a qualifier, but that's nothing compared to four years or three years at the very least of round-robin cricket when they might get a chance to play you know away in India or, or home in Australia or against Australia or whatever it is, countries that mm-hmm. usually would, would ignore them. Yeah, uh, that that's that's the fundamentals. But, you know, the uh, the larger teams don't want to play those other teams. So, you know, this is a this is a handy way of not doing that. Uh, you, you can't say they're not consistent, the ICC. If anything, they're not consistent. Every second World Cup will be in India. There'll be 250 over World Cups in the space of eight years in India, <laughs> 2023 oh, yeah. and 2031. I mean, why not? You know, go where the money is. Get it in a big pile and then you can all roll in the pile <laughs> and then you get the smell of money all over you and then you can go rub up against other people because you smell of money and be like, yeah, waft it, give it a whiff. Yeah, it's an aphrodisiac, I suppose. But, yeah, the the... the I mean, remember, the, the ICC are always – those who work for the ICC are always quick to remind us that they are a member-based organisation. Mm-hmm. They work for the members. And sure enough, this was a recommendation from the Chief Executives Committee, I think it was, which has 12 CEOs on there from the full member nations who really boils down to what, what's the will of the room and what's the will of India. Uh, and occasionally the will of India, Australia and England, depending on how they're feeling at the time. So, yes, four of the tournaments in the next eight years from 2023 uh, will be in India. Surprise, surprise. Jeff, I said we've got live shows to announce. Let's get straight to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have been busy behind the scenes and we have locked in. Melbourne on the 13th of December at the Mission to Seafarers, where we were in 2019. We have locked in on the right. 14th of December, uh, the Uni Bar in Adelaide for our second Adelaide live show. We did one of those two years ago as well. And we haven't quite locked in, but we've nearly locked in Sydney on the 4th of January. So we're not going to start selling tickets to that as yet. But in the show notes, you will see two different links for two different mm-hmm. shows, as is the custom. The Melbourne on the 13th of December, and we jump on the plane on the 14th and we'll arrive in Adelaide for that show the following evening. And, uh, well, they've all been sellouts so far. I expect this will be as well. Can't wait to have you all along. Can't wait to get you uh, to the seafarers. I can't wait to have people being allowed to be in the same room because apparently that will happen in Melbourne before the time of the show. We're, we're relying on that happening. Um, you know, obviously, if something goes desperately awry, then we'll work out ways to give everyone their, their cash back. But it should happen and there'll be us in a room where seafarers are normally in the room. Uh, there'll be a big ship's bell that we may or may not ring and there, there will be good times had. We're working out what the show exactly is going to look like. A hot tip for you if you're listening, if you haven't joined the patron, now's a good time because you get a discount on your tickets. So why wouldn't you? Yes. Why wouldn't you? you, well, you basically, it's, it's, it's the best time. Now's the best time. Yeah, and, and this happened. Join up. You can probably win a slab and you can get a discount on your tickets. That's right. And speaking of slabs, Brick Lane are going to be very much part of what we're doing uh, in these live shows. But, yeah, it's like when we had our virtual live shows during lockdown with Damien Fleming and Stuart McGill. We are offering a third discount to our patrons. So that'll all be specified in the ticket link and in the show notes. But, yeah, if you're not a patron already and you get on board now, you'll have access to that code and away we go. And if you're not, that's cool too. We'd love to have you. And, in fact, the first time I went to the Seafarers, Jeff, you were performing there. Mm -hmm. This was in 2014. You Mm -hmm. were doing some some, uh, spoken word presentations that night and I, I remember it fondly. So... 
There's that the early days of when you and I would see each other in the pub before we were working with each other. And then in 2019, it was like our homecoming show, wasn't it? After um, the 19 World Cup and Ashes, we went there before the test series between mm-hmm. Australia and Pakistan, if memory serves me correctly. Brad Hodge was with us that night. We did the Ballad of Sean Marsh that night in full. Uh, and then in Adelaide 2019, the following week, we did... Jim Maxwell telling filthy stories. We did Jason Gillespie telling his uh, tale of life in cricket. And, and that was an absolute beauty as well at the Ambassadors. But we are going to go to the, yeah, it's called Unibar. It's on the, the banks of the River Torrens across the road from Adelaide Oval. So it's a nice test match location. A couple of days before the test starts between Australia and England. So what we've tried to do is place both of these shows between the Brisbane test, which no one's going to anyway because we're locked out of Queensland. So that'll be the night after the Brisbane test finishes. And then two days before mm-hmm. the Adelaide test match starts. Yeah, well, I I will be in Brisbane, but I I can't do a live show on my own. But, you know, if people just want to come down to the house that I'm doing home quarantine in and, like, you know, I'll I'll just do a show for you over the fence or something, (laughs) give 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 me something to do while I'm locked up in there. All right, so, yeah, bring your mates, get involved, even if they're not necessarily part of what we've done in the final word before. Remember, Jeff, in London in 19 at the Hampstead Cricket Club show, we had a bunch of blokes who... I don't know, like a friend of a friend of a friend told them to come to this cricket show. There was about 10 of them. Mm-hmm. They had the time of their lives and they've all been final word listeners thereafter. And I think a couple mm-hmm. of them are now patrons too. So uh, in keeping with that spirit, bring everybody along. I mentioned that Brick Lane will be there in force, both in Melbourne and Adelaide. We have some good news that may or may not have been uh, revealed off the top of the show. I'm not sure if it was part of Jay's intro this week, but we are giving away at the moment 200 four-packs of Brick Lane for free. Uh, and all you need to do, Jeff, is um, simply sign up uh, to the Brick Lane uh, mailing list. And you do that by going to bricklanebrewing.com forward slash pages forward slash the final word. That'll be in the show notes as well. So click that link, put your details in, get yourself on the mailing list. And if you're of the first 200 people to do that, there's a four pack coming your way. And, you know, they're nice people. They won't send you a million emails a day. I, I trust. I trust they're not the kind of list that would over email, you know, because they're, they're decent. They're from Melbourne. They're from Dandenong, out Adam's way. They're, they're earthy. They're local. They, they use local produce. They employ local people. They try to look after the environment with what they do. They're an all-round uh, good news brewery. And if you don't like drinking, you can drink their options that don't have any booze in them. And what we're also going to do with Brick Lane while we're on the topic of live shows, we haven't quite got this down pat yet, but one night during the Melbourne Test Match, we will work mm-hmm. with Brick Lane to do, hopefully, the daily show from there. I wouldn't say to a studio audience necessarily, but you can come along mm-hmm. and hang out with Jeff and me as we record it at Brick Lane at Queen Victoria Market, and then we can all have a, a couple of beers and a bite to eat afterwards in there. So provided that all lines up with the with the schedule, we'll be endeavouring to do that. Probably not Boxing Day, but one of the days um, that follow, 27, 28, 29, something like that. So bricklanebrewing.com forward slash pages forward slash the final word to get yourself uh, in the first 200. And there'll also be a 15% offer, uh, Jeff, that we are rolling out again. Uh, we have Maxi 145 and loads of people got involved in that. That's going to be our December, let's call it Christmas offer. We haven't quite worked out mm-hmm. uh, what the code's going to be, but watch this space. We'll reveal all on the weekly show, hopefully, next week. Well, since we're coming into an Ashes, I think it should be 
Sean Marsh one eight two. Can we do eighteen point two percent? Can we let's see if let's see if we can negotiate Bricklane up to up to eighteen point two. I reckon I reckon that's quite re- is that is one eight two what he made at Adelaide last night. In Hobart. Oh at Hobart, sorry. Because he yeah. yeah, we we could go with what he made. I suppose at we could do his ashes. That was one twenty six, I think, so that's not as generous. Yeah. I think it's the ultimate Sean Marsh day was the one eight two. Okay. Well let, let's commit to that. By that, I mean, let's ask Brickland permission, but they're usually very, very good Mm -hmm. about this. Good people doing good things. Speaking of the Ashes, Jeff, now the World Cup's over, we can focus on the real stuff, Mm -hmm. I said with tongue-in-cheek. The Ashes squad of 15 has been announced. Very different to how it was done, uh, I suppose, it was 11 years ago when they had that process of elimination when they named, like, 19 and evicted one person (laughs) off the island each day. Someone got pushed into the pool. Yes, yeah, Rob Guest was pushing people into the man-o-man pool. Uh, and they ended up with a squad of, I think, 14 for the first two tests there. Well, it's 15 this time. I'm still not entirely sure why they bother with these squads of 15 in the modern era. Mm. I mean, of course, if they want to pick someone up who's not in there, they'll fly them into the team. But anyway, it's a bit of a relic, but let's go with it. The first two test matches... I guess because they have to quarantine to go to Brisbane, don't they? So whoever sure. their players yeah. are, they, they have to they have to be there for the, the two weeks of, of quarantine, you know, a week before they'll no longer have to do it anymore. That, that is a very, very good point. I didn't even consider that. Yes, they will have to... Because I'm not quarantining. I've kind of forgotten the fact that no. these players are being put yep. into two weeks of completely unnecessary quarantine purely because CA yep. is so bloody stubborn that they wouldn't have moved the Brisbane test to January when it obviously should be to mean all the players coming home from the World Cup could spend two weeks with their yeah. families. But instead of letting players have two precious weeks with their families, families. Let's lock them up in a hotel for two weeks back in Brisbane. What a good idea that is. Anyway, that's all been Mm -hmm. and done. For Australia, the news, well, at least I thought the news was no Nick Maddinson and no Mitchell Marsh. I thought, even though George Bailey was quite bullish around Marcus Harris playing the first test last week, in the back of my mind, I thought that was a bit of a bluff and Maddo would have been like right there with him, given his extraordinary record for Victoria over the last couple of years. And it looked like Maddow's kind of cherry ripe to, to get another opportunity at test level. But Marcus Harris is going to play the first two tests, it looks like, and it'll be between Usman Kawaja and Travis Head for the number five spot. Do you think they would actually play Kawaja at five or is he really there as top order insurance in case one of the top three falls over? And I, I mean, the way I would read it, you know, head Head's the incumbent ish at five not quite not exactly but he's the one who they've tried to make work at number five yeah. for so long that it feels pretty obvious that that's that's who they'll go with and Kawaja will be their backup I probably would have I mean I, I, I know I already mentioned Maddinson as the opener I suppose that's because we know that Kawaja isn't going to open they kind of already ruled that out but if mm. we were starting from a blank piece of paper I'd have been tempted to have opened with Kawaja and played head at five mm. as the informed player in the country but it looks as though they're playing for one spot. Green confirmed as number six. In other words, Mitchell Marsh isn't there to apply pressure in the immediate term. Although, thinking this through rationally, if these Australia A players are also going to be part of the quarantine, I assume, because they're playing a game mm-hmm. in Brisbane uh, between 1 and 3 December, then they're playing the game against mm-hmm. the England uh, against England's line squad, also in Brisbane. So presumably that means that any of Sean Abbott, Ashton Agar, Scott Boland, Alex Carey, Henry Hunt, Josh Inglis, Nick Maddinson, Mitchell Marsh, Matt Renshaw back in town, uh, Mark Steckerty or Bryce Street could in theory play at Brisbane or, or Adelaide. And uh, the, in turn, it means that Mitch Marsh is it entirely out of calculations. And given he was the player of the World Cup sort of three nights ago, it'd be unusual for him to be overlooked entirely. So, yeah, I guess they're, they're just about within touching distance, but they play a practice match, 
possibles versus probables that used to be called back in the old days. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. It would probably be Australia versus Australia A because Australia or Australia and Australia A, Australia A. Well, it was the Haddon 12 and the Hick 12 in mm. Southampton, The uh, a game that will go down in history. Uh, what, a, what a time it was <laughs> um, watching that complete <laughs> dud of a nonsense performance on one of the weirdest pitches I've ever seen that was about – I don't know, 20 metres away from the boundary on the on the far, far side of the field. Yes. You know, anything you chipped to leg as a right-hander um, was just sailing over the fence. But, yeah, the, you do what you got to do. It got Cameron Bancroft in the test team, if I recall, making 80-odd sure on, a, on a very not for long track. Not for long. Just two tests and out, as yeah. per. So, yes, the Australian squad, as names, Warner, Harris, Labashane, Smith, Head, Green, Payne, Cummins, Stark, Lyon, Hazelwood. That's what Jeff thinks will be the starting 11. That's how he's written it in our shared document. And then the four other players, Kawaja, Jumping Jai Richardson in the wickets last week for Western Australia, back in the squad, Michael Nisa, Mitch Schwepson, fresh from partying with the T20 squad after being awarded. I like how they get World Cup winning medals, even if they haven't played. So Schwepson uh, mm-hmm. was part of that and good on him for it. But um, one other point here when looking at Richardson and Nisa, George Bailey is using the R word, rotation, um, you know, especially about the big fast bowlers who didn't rotate last year across four test matches, but across five, it looks like it'll be more like 2019 in England than it was 17, 18 in Australia when uh, when the, the five bowlers, well, sorry, the four bowlers took all the wickets, mm. line being the spinner. So it probably means that Richardson and Nisa will get opportunities through the series, which I think is a good thing. It, it, it made sense in 19. It made sense to me last year when they elected not to do it, and it still makes sense uh, heading into what turns out to be about five test matches in six and a half weeks. Hashtag Nisa must play. Yep. Uh, might at last come to fruition. It also means that James Pattinson probably would have played if he yeah. had ruled himself in rather than ruling himself out, but he he didn't feel that he'd be right. He'd be sort of physically ready to, to go at that level, I suppose, um, with all the spotlight and scrutiny of an Ashes series, of which he has played a couple. So at least he he doesn't have that sort of end of the career thing that um, that that he missed out on that front because he was involved a couple of times. So Australia squad is named. England are in quarantine. It's all about the kickoff. It's the Ashes of 2021-22. Jeff and I will be making the Ashes daily every day uh, through that stretch. It would be remiss of me to say that we've been so bloody busy that we haven't quite got our ducks in a row in terms of commercial partnerships for that as yet. If you want to work with us on the Ashes daily, and um, yeah, by way of background, th- those do pretty well. Uh, people listen to our daily shows more than they listen to our weekly shows. I don't know why, but they do. Um, hit us up, mm-hmm. finalwordcricket at gmail.com if you want to partner with us, not only on the podcast feed, but on YouTube where we've had, I guess, the better part of 3 million people visit this year. and We've only just started getting serious there. So send Jeff an, an email. Jeff will pick it up and, and we'll have a look through it and see uh, if you want to be uh, doing what we do uh, through the ashes. We'll be doing a, a preview show every test match and, and one each night of the series. Uh, Jeff, let's leave it there. Let's have a, a brief breather and uh, we'll return with our feature interview today uh, with Taha Hashim and with Nikesh Raghani. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. It's The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Uh, And as we said off the top, today we're conducting a conversation we've been wanting to have for over a year, but we've waited for the right time and we feel like 
It's it right now. With us is Taha Hashim of Wisdom Cricket Monthly and Nikesh Shragani, freelance broadcaster, mostly of the BBC and more recently on SEN Test Cricket. Yesterday at Westminster, the Select Committee for Culture, Media and Sport heard the compelling and devastating testimony of Azim Rafiq, speaking in depth about the racist abuse he was subjected to during his Yorkshire career between 2008 and 2018. After Azim, Tom Harrison, the Chief Executive of the ECB and Roger Hutton who recently stood down as the chairman of Yorkshire County Cricket Club also spoke and were probed by parliamentarians. It was a massive and historic day with Azim's words leading news bulletins around the country. It was Utaha who first shared some of Azim's story in public uh, in an interview some 15 months ago for your magazine. With that in mind, how are you feeling after something you've worked on so diligently is now receiving such widespread attention with these hard home truths around English cricket now being heard around the world? Yeah, I mean, first, thanks for having me on. Um, Look, it's just, it it was a surreal day. It was, you know, like you said, it's been... 16 months since I first spoke to Azim and it's a story that's gone you know it's led to uproar and then quietness uproar and quietness uh and then it all changed two weeks ago um but ultimately this was the day that Azim Rafiq had, had wanted for so long he wanted the day that he could he could speak his truth and he finally got that day after so you know it's not just about the last 15 months you know the this is about a guy who'd been in the Yorkshire system since he was a kid and everything had almost been building up, all those experiences building up for him to, to speak on this day. And so it felt incredible to see that all happen. You know, he was, I thought he was thoroughly captivating. I thought he was powerful. Look, it's been said how brave he was speaking yesterday, but um, beyond bravery, there's there was an eloquence to him. You know, there's one thing being brave, there's one thing, and then there's another putting it all out there for the world to see. And... A surreal day, a day that kind of is is the start of a new chapter. You know, it's you know one one kind of one chapter is really closed now. It was the the whole process that he'd been through over the last year and a half, and now it's what happens next. You know, it's is this the moment English cricket changes forever? And it kind of feels like it is. It, it was hard not to to witness what happened yesterday and not think this is a, a transformational moment. And you spoke to Azim last night, Taha. How's it going? Well, I mean, just off a, a brief phone call, uh, just to see how he was doing. Um, he was tired. He was exhausted. Uh, of course, he was exhausted. He'd, he'd laid it all out on the line, um, but there was a, there was a sense of relief in his voice too. I think a, a relief that he finally got his day to, to to speak freely, to you know, to speak the the truth he'd wanted out there for so long. Nikesh, you've been involved in in cricket uh, at Leicester and in the media for for many years. Uh, I suppose it was a significant day for all British Asians who have experienced in different forms what Azim have experienced, and you've talked in depth around that. How did you observe yesterday? Yeah, absolutely. I I think the first thing to mention is that for the first time it felt in the UK, certainly in my lifetime, British Asians had a voice in, in speaking out against racism in sport, be it institutional or, or just overt being called the P word, uh, as as he mentioned, he was he was called on many occasions. Lots and lots of people that I've spoken to, who I've played cricket with, who I've grown up with, members of my family, friends, 
they they can all understand exactly those experiences that Azim Rafiq is talking about. They've lived through those same experiences. And it took until 2021, when you think British Asians have been prominent in the UK since the late 1960s through the 1970s, there was mass immigration. They've been in England and, and the UK for many, many years. And it took until 2021 for something like this to be so prominent in the news that, that people had to take notice. And, and for a lot of people in the media, they've come out with statements like, oh, this is shocking. Well, to a lot of people like us, it, it's, it's not right. It's, it's unacceptable, but it doesn't come as a great shock. And it just took great bravery, I feel, uh, from Azim Rafiq, uh, as, as Taha mentioned, to come out there and, and speak the truth and not give up the fight, not, you know, just get take the money and run, basically. Don't take a payoff and, and keep quiet. Nobody was able to buy his silence. And he's taken it all the way to the top. He's taken it to Parliament. He's, he's spoken to the nation. And, and people can finally understand not only what he went through, but what so many British Asians, boys and girls, would have gone through, not only at sporting organisations, at cricket clubs and, and places like that, but at school, just growing up in these communities, what it was like. People you know, thinking the P word is banter, for example. I was so glad when I when I heard him specifically make the point in Parliament that the calling somebody the P word is absolutely not banter. It is racism. And if people don't understand that, well, they, they need educating and they need educating fast because it is unacceptable. And uh, finally, we are seeing it in the limelight. The next question is, what can we do to make things better? What can we do to instigate change? One further introductory question from me, Nikesh, and it relates to the P word. A lot of our audience are based in Australia. And until very recently, the P word was used purely as an abbreviation for when the Pakistani cricket team came to Australia. Just by way of background, can you explain the origin of the P word in this country and why yes. it isn't just an abbreviation of Pakistani? Absolutely. In the UK, it means something very different. Look, it's an interesting point you make because I've seen tweets from people in India on social media, you know, not just on Twitter, on, on all forms of social media saying, well, what's wrong with, with calling somebody the P word? It's just short for, for Pakistani. It's very, very different in the UK. It, it's basically used as a derogatory term for all South Asian immigrants into the UK, uh, as I talked about in the 1960s, the 70s and onwards. It was a very derogatory term. It's, it's in many ways similar to the N-word and the way that that has been used all around the world, but most prominently in America, um, you know, back, back a few decades ago when, uh, when black people were, were, were subjected to, 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 to racism. They still are over there and the N-word is unacceptable. Uh, they, they seem to have... You know, in some way, the black community in the US has, has reclaimed that word and, you know, through rap music and, and various things like that, they've reclaimed the N word. Uh, but for somebody to call a black person the N word is completely unacceptable in any place in the world. And the same sh should be seen for the P word as well. And, and people outside of the UK may not understand the hurt that that causes somebody, but you've just got to ask people like my dad, like, you know, like my grandparents who came to this country, what that word means to them. And even just hearing it myself, I, I was, you know, lucky I, I didn't have to face as much racism as, as my parents when they came over here, when they were very young and, and went to school here in, uh, in the UK. 
But I was called the P word and, and just hearing Azim Rafiq speak, it, it takes me back to when I was a teenager, when I was at school, when I was playing at, at cricket clubs. I, I was a good player. I was respected as a good player. But it didn't stop people having a banter, as they call it, inverted commas, and, and calling me the P word, making jokes about how I smelt of curry and, and things like that. And looking back on it, I wish I had done more at the time, but, you know, as as is the case, you, you concentrate on your cricket, you concentrate on your schooling, you bat these things off, you feel like there's no real support system when you're in that situation. And, and hopefully now, kids going forward, my seven-year-old daughter, she won't have to worry about that. I'm her support system. She will have a support system at school, in her employment when she grows up, and, and things can change as a result of this. It was interesting. We had the same kinds of arguments being brought up about left-arm wrist spin, about uh, why is there anything wrong with using the word Chinaman when you can call someone a Frenchman or whatever it is. But it all comes back to whether that word has been used as a hostile derogatory word, which, which Chinaman was. And But these kind of arguments are so often just used to obfuscate and delay. And that's what we've seen from Yorkshire throughout this whole process is just obfuscation and delay. It was interesting, I thought, that the parliamentary committee was so supportive. Nobody on that committee questioning was antagonistic towards Azim Rafiq. Was any of that a surprise to you that there was such a receptive hearing in the halls of government when there had been a complete lack of any uh, reception in within cricket itself? Um, n- not particularly, because ju- just because of what's happened in the last couple of weeks. I think there's... There's a there's a sort of universality about this whole situation in the last couple of weeks where everyone understands what a mess it's been by Yorkshire. There aren't really any sides to this, and and that's refreshing in a way. What sometimes happens with debates of of racism in this country is that, that it becomes a two sides thing when it when it really doesn't have to be that. Um, and so that that's almost been a weirdly refreshing thing about this whole thing where. There's not really becoming a debate now. It, it's it's clear. Like you you can't say that. You know, I'm sure there are people out there who would still who would still minimise it, who will still argue that this is dressing room banter. It's an everyday thing. It's you know, deal with it. But I think overwhelmingly the the voices the the voices that are being heard are saying on on across all sides that you know this you know this was this was unacceptable. Yeah, I'd agree with uh, Taha there. It's it, it is refreshing that that it has been you know by the majority accepted as as this this has been a disgrace really the way it's been handled not only by Yorkshire but just you know overall by everybody involved really it's it wasn't taken seriously enough at the time. The whole movement has gathered momentum and, and Azim Rafiq as a result has has gained a lot of support from not only the British Asian community but from all communities uh, in the UK and and in cricket, really, uh, when you look at the vast majority, this is unacceptable. You, you, it's interesting as well that you you see certain players who are named, and and there are statements been coming out uh, of of you know Tim Bresnan, for example, uh, who's now at Warwickshire, was at Yorkshire, of course, was a former teammate of Azim Rafiq, and uh, he, he came out and apologised and said, "Look, I didn't realise what I was saying at the time." was so offensive to you and and you know whether whether you accept his apology or not the fact he has come out and apologized and and been made to think that what he said is not acceptable it wasn't acceptable then it isn't acceptable now 
and he's acknowledged that he he is at Warwickshire. He works with their academy. Their academy is made up of a lot of South Asian uh, heritage cricketers as well uh, in the Birmingham and surrounding areas. So he has realised um, that that he made a mistake, and I think it's it's good that you know people who may not have may may have got caught up in this sort of dressing room culture and these these social nights out, as Azim called, you know, down the pub or wherever it might be, and, and just insults being thrown left, right and centre. There is a line and you do not cross that line. And once you cross that line, you will be called out. And that has to be the message that is taken from this. And, and if it makes uh, former cricketers, current cricketers who, who've been involved in this kind of... Uh, chat and and kind of abuse being thrown at uh, South Asian cricketers, at black cricketers, whoever it might be, making them realise that this is unacceptable uh, is the first step. And then uh, how to change that culture going forward is the next challenge. Yeah, and I suppose, Taha, the way this was responded to initially after you filed your story is emblematic of that, oh, well, it doesn't matter an awful lot. Because let's be honest, your story didn't prompt a response from Yorkshire. It was when there was multiple reports and then George DeBell of course at Crick Info then they launched the report and then from what we heard yesterday there were efforts to scupper the whole thing and not even not even go ahead with it and all that time all that delay all that diversion the release on the day the Old Trafford test match was cancelled for example there was a sense that within the the corridors of power at Yorkshire uh, they were quite comfortable to dismiss this as actually not that important and besmirching uh, the character of Azim Rafiq seemed like the first line of defence. Yeah, and just um, that that sort of constant lack of transparency, like you said there, when I first did the interview, I approached Yorkshire for co- uh, comment. They said no comment. It took Crick Info, and they are a significantly bigger website than the website I work for, wisdom.com. It took that story to, to really prompt really prompt the report, basically. But even then, even when we were sort of getting, you know, when, when Yorkshire got the findings, basically, initially they, they said you know, we'd like to apologise to Zim for, you know, inappropriate behaviour. And it was only it was only afterwards where eventually they were sort of forced to say he was the victim of racial harassment. You know, a constant kind of pulling back and sort of I don't know, trying to save reputations to to just try and minimize and minimize and and just hide everything and it, it caught up with them in the end. It was it got too big basically. It's an extraordinary process when you look at how how much this has been dragged out. Taha, just walk us through it, uh, if you can, in the Cliff Notes version from from start to finish. The number of times that they've tried to duck it, cover it, say that they've got the report finished but they won't release it, say that they will release it but they'll only release bits of it. Like they've been absolutely dragged kicking and screaming all the way and still it seems like Yorkshire haven't actually embraced the need to change there's there are still strong elements at the club who want to bunker down and you know hope that somehow this will blow over and attention will go elsewhere yeah I mean if if we want to go right back to the start you know I interviewed Azim it would have been actually July 2020 the interview was published in in August and then I think there was a sort of a two-week gap where Azim does another interview with a podcast. He he sort of, he started with me in terms of he opened up a bit. When he did the podcast, he opened up a bit more. And then it got to speaking to George Zabel, who's been, you know, incredible in what he's done in this process and the journalism he's produced. It took that interview for Azim to say outright that he thought Yorkshire was institutionally racist and that he'd been driven to the brink of suicide. 
and that was that became the headline and there was there was no going back from there you know yorkshire then say you know they sort of commission this report they talk of this independent panel but the story does go quiet for a really long time because we're waiting for this report to come out meanwhile at the same time rafiq is there waiting and i guess you know losing faith in in whatever's going to come out you know it was i guess this august where yorkshire said look we've got we've got the findings of the report i mean initially i'm 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 fairly certain in terms of their timeline that they said it would be a few months, but then, you know, it just dragged out and dragged out. And and then in August, they said they've got the findings. And that's when they first say, look, Zim Rafiq was the victim of inappropriate behaviour. And obviously, you know, the the frustration that would have caused him, I mean, he he made that frustration clear. Inappropriate behaviour is a very different thing to racial abuse. And then it comes to September where we don't get the report we still don't have the report, of course, even to this day, in the, in the public domain. Yorkshire produced their own summary of the report. They release it on the morning of that cancelled test match between England and India, that fifth test at Old Trafford. And it outlines that seven of Rafiq's allegations have been upheld, that he was the victim of racial harassment and bullying. What happens afterwards, of course, is that Yorkshire then say, we've reviewed the findings, these are the actions we're going to take. And they're not going to punish anyone at the club. And that, of course, leads to a sense of uproar, but not the uproar that's led to where we are today. I think the key moment this whole story shifts really is the 1st of November this month, where, you know, George Zabel releases, you know, he's, you know, the rule report has been leaked and he reports that story, which says that the P word was used to banter. Mm. And that is the moment really where this whole story changes. It's that week that spot MPs intervene, sponsors pull out, once sponsors pull out. <laughs> the, the, the harsh reality is that, that, that it's money that changes everything. And then, and then the ECB weigh in and, you know, everything changes. Yeah, I mean, all hell broke loose. I mentioned it in the intro that leading the TV news, cricket in England, really? I mean, it doesn't happen, but for all the wrong reasons here. And then, you know, the idea of racial abuse was just underpinned by pretty much everything Azim Rafiq said in the first half an hour of his testimony yesterday about the open secret of the isolation and humiliation that he was subjected to, the inhuman treatment, as he described it, when he, he lost, a, uh, lost, lost his son, when the types of terminology which became common practice, the names that were used for players of Asian origin, the fact that someone else named a dog after... That term, it, it, I mean, it just got worse and worse and worse, didn't it? And this was the first time that Azim Rafiq was given the chance to detail this under parliamentary privilege, essentially, that he had the, the right to say what he needed to say, and thus, uh, thus the coverage yesterday. But then we go back into the usual place, the culture war, which um, is something I suppose we're all familiar with, regrettably. The term institutional racism uh, lives fair and square in the culture war. Uh, people don't like it. A lot of people do not like the term, and we see that's where the debates move to. But even uh, the former chairman of Yorkshire um, was forced to acknowledge uh, in his testimony yesterday that it's almost impossible uh, to avoid, when you hear Azim Rafiq put it as plainly as he did yesterday, that there are, there are elements of institutional racism at play here which go far beyond the individual. I mean, the, the, Roger Hudson, sort of, you know, the chair who who resigned from the club, you know, just a, a couple of weeks ago, you know, he outlined just a, a culture unwilling to change, a culture unwilling to apologise, 
a culture unwilling to listen. And listen is the, is the key word here. One of the most powerful things I thought yesterday was Rafiq recalling him giving an interview to Sky. Uh, this would have been last year. And the next day getting a phone call from Matthew Hoggard, who had said a lot of hurtful things to Rafiq when he was a young player. Matthew Hoggard, who of course played for England, you know, I'm sure someone Rafiq looked up to, you know, someone, someone I looked up to as a kid. And Hoggard just saying, I'm, I'm really sorry and, and apologising. And it was, it was really powerful. And Rafiq said, wow, that, thank you for that. And, it's, and that's all he wanted, right? Um, and you go back to it, like, if, if that was the attitude taken to Rafiq when he first raised these concerns to the club, mm. or when he first spoke yeah. to the media last year, yeah. this could be a very different story today. If you think about it, it's such a simple process. Yeah. Matthew Hoggard listened. He understood his behaviour was completely wrong. He apologised. We all move on. It's, you know, it's a human being learning. It's mm. a human being made mistakes. A human being was product of an environment that was always going to force him to make those mistakes, right? And so I thought that that passage has probably been overlooked by the more, you know, the headlines and the, the more negative headlines, if you know what I mean, in terms of, yep. you know, you know, balance and, and that kind of thing. But there's, there's power in that story um, that kind of symbolises everything that's also gone wrong in this process. Yeah, you'd think that looking at this story from the outside, there would be people who didn't know a whole lot about it who'd be saying, oh, who is this guy you know, making this trouble, kicking up this fuss and all the rest of it. I think that the core of this is that Azim Rafiq the entire time has said all he wanted was for this to be dealt with, was for the club to look at it, for the players involved to look at it, to accept what had happened, to hear what he had to say, and that's what they refused to do. I'm interested in the perspective of uh, both of you guys, Nikesh and Taha, from when... If, if you're in this kind of position, the disincentive to do anything about it on the basis that you will be seen to be a quote-unquote troublemaker seems like such a powerful thing. It's such a, a smothering... Uh, like, it, it it makes it impossible to to want to take this up, to, to want to take, bring, these, bring these issues forward, to want to uh, make accusations when they need to be made because it will be turned on you that you are now the source of that. You are the one who's created the problem rather than the people who've created the problem by offending against you. And I thought that was the most powerful thing uh, that came out of, of what Azim Rafiq was saying, really. And, and ultimately, he was asked if he thought racism had ended his career, and, and he said yes. And, and that, that's basically exactly what happened. He's still a young man. He still could easily be... Uh, playing top-level cricket. He certainly had the talent to do so. Captain of Yorkshire, captain of the England under-19s. There's no reason why he couldn't have had uh, a much longer and, and successful county career, at least. Um, the fact that he, he brought this up, he was he was effectively pushed out of the club. And, um, you know, it, it, 2017 was was when he first made his sort of initial complaint I suppose I don't know how formal the process was at Yorkshire but that's when he first brought up uh, this issue of of being dealt with a, a little bit differently at that time he addressed it as bullying he he thought he was being bullied when in fact it was it was more than just bullying it was simple racism he was he was receiving racist abuse on almost uh, a daily occurrence really and it's not only in cricket, Jeff. It's it's whether you work in an office and and you're hearing this kind of 
talk going on behind your back, to your face, whatever it might be, people are afraid to take it up with their boss because they, you know, ultimately will be seen as a troublemaker. This has gone on for generations in the UK. Countless stories that I've heard of of people who've just got a, a normal job. They might be an accountant or, you know, they might work in a call centre or whatever it might be. They have, have faced racism and they they will be angry about it. They'll go home and tell their friends and family about it. But they won't necessarily take up a formal process with their employer because they'll probably be sacked at the end of it. Or even if they're not sacked or, or pushed out in some way or another, they'll be given less responsibility. They'll, they won't get promotions in the future and, and it'll, it will affect their career. And the same has happened to Azim. It's, it's probably happened to countless other people within sport, within cricket as well. And uh, this this really is a watershed moment that, look, you, you, you can speak out, you, you have to speak out. And and now it's it's not seen as, as such a taboo to, to talk about racism and to talk about being racially abused. And hopefully more people will come out and speak out against this as a result. Yeah, I, 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 it's interesting that that sort of that term, the, the, the troublemaker. And now I'm curious as to because now we've seen a shift in the last couple of weeks where clubs, you know, Yorkshire themselves, but other, other county cricket clubs, Surrey, Essex, they're saying, come to us. We're sort of welcoming people to come talk about their experiences. Maybe this is the, the, the shift that English cricket now, like you say, it's not just cricket, maybe society as well, but in terms of English cricket specifically, we see, you know, people people are obviously coming forward now. They're, they're talking about their experiences. And now maybe we just we stop with that terminology we stop looking at these people as as disruptors it's just you know you just hope that there's a shift in attitude uh, an opening of arms and saying look people come there's no there's no judgment here just come and talk about your experiences you know, tom harrison the chief executive of the ecb when, when speaking to the select committee yesterday said that if we're not in an emergency yet we are now this existential threat i mean the ecb has spent a lot of time and invested a lot of resources too in trying to engage the South Asian community, but the reputational damage, the profound reputational damage uh, based on uh, what appears to be this inertia at ECB Towers, which Harrison's now saying they, they have to fix and fix it fast. I wonder in what, what form that will take Taha, uh, to the extent to which how can they fix it fast when there is so much hurt? I mean, it feels as though we need an extended period of people being able to come out and share their stories and, and, and tell their truth before we can even get close to, to fixing this, to use his terminology. Yeah, I think we're still, we're, still at, we're still not at that stage in terms of what to do next. I think it's, we're still at the stage of we need to hear from everyone. Mm. We, we're still, they're opening it up and they're saying everyone come forward and that's when you can get to the stage of what to do next because that is such a huge question because I... Like, I, I, I really don't know. I don't know how you build back up. In terms of the Yorkshire, if, if, if I wanted to go specifically and talk about Yorkshire and what they do next, I think it's so important for them. Uh, it, look, it's a very tough task for them. Lord Patel's come in as chair, and I think that's a really good appointment. Just a bit of background on Lord Patel. He was, he was born in Kenya. He came to Bradford as, as a baby. He grew up in that Yorkshire cricketing culture. Mm. He was there. He experienced racism he was chased by skinheads he said himself i was a very good runner as a kid because he was getting chased by skinheads he you know he saw he saw asian players forced to create their own leagues and play amongst themselves because they were ignored by uh 
a culture and a club that had its own birthright policy. You had to be born in Yorkshire to play for it until the early 90s. Yorkshire was an exclusionary force, unlike any other in English cricket. And look, it seems very clear that it remains so till this day. That club itself has made progress, I don't know. I mean, but it has made attempts to reach out to the South Asian community. It's had British Asian players filter through the system and had did do in the early 2000s, where you then did have Admiral Rasad, Azim Rafiq, Adil Rashid playing together. But even that's dried up. And, and the key thing for me is, is, is getting to that level of representation again. That's so important to have more Asian players in that first team to, to help rebuild that trust with the communities around, around the place, those, those communities that are hurting right now. But that's also a very long-term process because you need to make sure you have these players coming through the academy, getting into the first team. That, that takes time. What they do in the short term is 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 what interests me, and and where Lord Patel will be key because he he knows this experience, he has he has heart in this, you know, he's lived his his whole life in that in that culture, and so it means a great deal to him. And so, what he does in the short term, what what the club does in the short term to rebuild that trust, God, it's a it's a it's a big task, isn't it? I would absolutely agree with that and and it is about representation because when you whenever something like this happens and and obviously nothing as big as this has ever shook English cricket before but within any sport you know the the football association in England has has been guilty of of you know saying they're going to combat this problem of discrimination and racism within the game by reaching out to the community by you know engaging in grassroots uh, football and and cricket has has been the same. The ECB came up with something called a South Asian Action Plan a couple of years ago. I mean, nothing's really happened uh, as a result of that. It was all about reaching out to grassroots players, you know, getting more people involved in in organised cricket. That that's not the problem. Uh, over a third of all recreational cricketers, club cricketers at amateur level in England and Wales are from the South Asian community. They, they play, they engage with the game. They, they, you know, participation is not a problem. And amongst those one third, there are a lot of talented players who sometimes do make it into the academies, the under 13s, 14s, 15s, whatever it might be of these counties. I, I was one of them. And, uh, you know, when I was at Leicestershire in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, there were a fair few uh, other British Asians uh, within the squad as well, none of them made it through to uh, the first team. In fact, it took until 2006. When you when you think about it, in, in Leicester, which for those of you who don't know, is one of the most multicultural cities within the United Kingdom, massive, massive Indian community that came in the 1960s and uh, into the early 70s as well. So you're talking about the mid to late 1960s Asians have been you know, heavily populated in, in a city like Leicester, playing organised cricket in a city like Leicester, in, in all the top divisions. Let, let's make no bones about it. They're not playing in their own made-up Asian leagues, which we often hear about. They're playing in the, in the proper Leicestershire leagues. And um, it took until 2006 for the first local Asian player, locally born Asian player, to play for the county you think about the the generations that have just been skipped over there. Something is not right. And, uh, you know, as as Taha said, that there was that sort of moment where three British Asians were, were playing for Yorkshire 
uh, in the early 2000s, as you mentioned there. That, that's a very rare occurrence. It hasn't happened since. Will it happen again? Will, will we see it at any county again? And, and, you know, three Asian players in a county side shouldn't be a shock anymore. It should be the norm. That's representing what is going on the, on the ground at grassroots level all the way through club level. And, and that is what angers most people, that, that the ECB will just come out or, or clubs will come out with another scheme. Oh, we need to reach out to community leaders. Well, what is a community leader? I mean, most of them are self-appointed anyway. They, they've got no, you know, they've got no power over over anyone in the community, in any community. You need to just find that solution as to, you know, are you institutionally racist? If so, why are you not appointing the right people in your academies, in your scouting networks to go and find these cricketers? Just pick them on their talent. Pick the best players. If if that means you're picking eight Asian players in in say Leicestershire County Cricket Club's first team, fine, do that. If if you know, there's there's a generation where there's more talented, you know, white English players. Pick them, you know, just, just pick people on their talent and make sure that overall, over the course of time, that county cricket and English cricket as a whole represents society. And that's that's all we're asking for, really. We're not asking for, you know, oh, we need to get more Asians involved in cricket to pick up a cricket bat and, and all that. There's enough of them, trust me. It's, it's the problem of representation at the top level. I suspect the headlines out of the testimony will mostly be about big names. It'll all be about who's who's been implicated, players who've played for England, you know, Gary Balance, Alex Hales, Michael Vaughan, um, David Lloyd, etc. It's It's whoever, whoever is the most prominent person who's been implicated and it will then become about uh, personality rather than procedure i suppose and we've we've already had some of these kind of um, half-hearted apologies we've had the the responses that i'm not a racist when you know it's not about racism being a personal characteristic it's about did you do something racist you know racism manifests in action not in in opinion but it seems like all of that focus will be going the wrong way when it needs to be about what is actually supposed to happen. One of the things I found frustrating with the uh, the questioning from the parliamentary committee was asking Azeem Rafiq a lot of the time, what should be done? What should Yorkshire do? What should the ECB do? As though the person who brings the problem to their attention also needs to bring a solution with it. And I think, like you alluded to before, Taho, there's very much... Uh, a drive to say, oh, here's what we're going to do next when actually it's now is the time to be listening to people, not to be trying to launch the next initiative. How does that happen? Like where where can things go from here in a way that's not just a T-shirt slogan, let's all move forward together like a Joe Root statement? On your first point, I, that's something I've been sort of interested in as well, sort of reading the headlines. And, and there's almost sort of a... There's almost sort of a level of immaturity sometimes when you see that focus on individuals as if it's kind of your sort of in the school playground sort of pointing out oh this person's that this person said that when you're not you're not understanding what the, the, the everyone here is part of that same culture it's yeah I mean you know like you said there I mean that question of what should everyone do next and everyone asking each other that question it, it still it still boils down to us being at a stage where we have to listen to everyone. Everyone's just started to come forward, 
and we're still at that listening stage. I just, I can almost, I can almost sympathize, sympathize with the authorities in a way where the task is so big and it, it's, yeah, I'm just, I'm, you know, <laughs> myself, look here, I'm not really getting anywhere. I'm not, I'm not sure where this goes next because we are still at the stage where we have to listen to everyone who's opening up their experiences. People are now citing Rafiq as someone who, who look, because Zim said this, I'm now going to talk about my experiences that go back a few years. And that's just going to keep coming for a while, I think. And we're still ha- we still have to just be at that stage. Yeah, it's like we need to step back from the the individuals and go, well, they said that we need to have them, I mean, for want of a better term, cancelled yeah. in favour of stepping back and acknowledging where the institutional issues are that we were touching on before. Because, I mean, it's not as though any club is going to come out of this without individuals within it having had problems over the journey. I think that much is clear already in the anecdotal evidence. In different countries, for that matter, in different clubs in different countries, I mean, this is going to be the start of something that requires a lot of people to reflect and consider the decisions they've made as younger people. And hopefully, I mean, this is a a bold ambition, I suppose, but I don't think an unrealistic one after yesterday. We can turn around in a decade and say there is a lot less racism in cricket. I mean, Nikesh, wouldn't that be the the best possible thing to come of this, that we, that we turn around in a generation and say, this was a watershed where people uh, took stock and took responsibility for their actions and that the game itself can get beyond this uh, and it doesn't need to become about how many people uh, are personally forced to walk the plank. It's more about how can the entire institution, the entire game, acknowledge where for generations it's been woefully falling short of the mark. Absolutely, because the moment you start cancelling people or sacking them from their positions that they're currently in, some people will think, oh, well, that's the problem solved. He said this, he's gone anyway, so it doesn't matter anymore. And that you're in danger of going down that road when the the problem is much bigger, as as we keep referring to. It's it's institutional. It It is run through cricket clubs in the United Kingdom for generations and has just been allowed to to be the status quo. And, and, and that culture, that, that has to change. Cricket clubs have to be more welcoming. And when I talk about clubs, I'm, I'm talking about professional clubs in particular, county cricket clubs and, and overall uh, the ECB when players sort of make it to that more elite level. It has to be more welcoming. It has to be more understanding of cultural differences and, and what can be said, what can't be said, what is bullying, what is racism. You know, none of that stuff should exist uh, within a dressing room. There, of course, there's a room for banter. Of course, you're going to take the mick out of your mates. That's what happens in, in all sports dressing rooms I did it I've, I've had the mick taken out of me as well sometimes I didn't like what was being said but as long as it didn't cross a certain line into racism and uh, you know being made to feel basically you know like shit because of the colour of your skin and you know I'm going to be blunt about it that's that's how it used to make me feel at, at times when when it crossed a certain point and um, you know I, I was fortunate that I would stand up for, for myself in those situations, but there's a lot of young people, boys and girls, who perhaps wouldn't would never have faced anything like that previously. And the first time they encounter racism, they'll they'll be in shock. They'll they'll have all sorts of emotions running through them. You you can't let young people feel like that in any kind of sporting environment. And and you're right, it's 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 a big problem within the game that needs to be eradicated. How we do it 
you know, there's no simple solution, really. How do you change dressing room culture? How do you sort of change what has been going on for for many decades, many generations? It can be done. Perhaps having the right people running these clubs, coaching these clubs in academies as well will will lead to some sort of change. Ultimately, it's all about education. Some people will have heard their parents use the P word. They won't know what the P word, what effect the P word can have on another young child, another one of their their teammates, their their school colleagues, whatever it might be. They they won't know. They'll just repeat the word. If if you if your dad's saying it, if your dad's driving down the street and he has a bit of road rage against a, 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 a driver from a South Asian background, may use the P word, oh, you, you, you know, effing P or whatever. And kids will repeat this kind of stuff. So it's about education. We, we need to, to get to them young. We need to make kids understand what racism is, why it's such a bad thing, what you can't say to people, how it makes people feel. And hopefully, eventually, we, we find some sort of solution to embed that into our game. Because um, I tell you what, it's, it's, it's very toxic at the moment. And it, and it can be a very toxic place in those dressing rooms uh, within county setups as well. And if you're in the minority, honestly, it, you just want the world to swallow you up at times. That, that, that's how it makes you feel. And, and we can't allow that. Nikesh, what stood out to me most in the testimony today and it was when Azim Rafiq was being asked about Joe Root and obviously there's a lot of interest in Joe Root because he's the England captain, he's Yorkshire's biggest star, the, the questions are how did he not know about it, he's saying I've, I never heard any racist abuse being used there and when Azim was asked about it he said you know Joe was out with them on nights when he was being racially abused uh, in a way that was supposedly friendly and all of the rest of it and the line that he said was basically that Joe probably wouldn't remember it because it doesn't mean anything to him. And he said, I think about it every day. That really stood out. How much of, you know, you've, you're talking about your experience of similar things. How much of the hurt is because other people won't recognise that anything has actually been done to you? You know, you've been injured in this way, but other people are not not even pretending it's nothing, but assuming it's nothing, not even recognising that anything has been done. It's massive. And uh, it's it, it, that, that was very powerful, what Azim said. And he did go on to say that, you know, J- Joe Root is a good guy. He's, he's one of the good guys. However, he was there and, and, you know, things were said to me, which he would have heard at the time. It just shows you how common practice this is. It's, it's been normalised in certain scenarios uh, within English cricket that, you know, such and such was said to a South Asian player. Oh, it's, it's not racist, it's just a bit of banter, just a bit of fun. It's team bonding, whatever you might want to call it. But the fact that Azim still remembers it to this day and, and is still so, you know, visibly hurt by what was said to him uh, all those years back, he's he's one of many, you know, this so much more frustrating when somebody just can't recognise that something so offensive has been said to you and, and how much it hurts you. They they can't see the hurt. They can't feel the hurt. They've not experienced it themselves. Yes. And, you know, if if you're not a, a brown person, you, you probably won't be called the P word. So, you know, it's, it's not their fault. They haven't been racially abused. We don't want anybody to be racially abused. Uh, but the fact that these guys um, like Joe Root wouldn't have ever had that kind of abuse held at them, 
they they can brush it off quite easily but it's as a south asian person in those situation it, it hurts so much that it is as a kid you know you you can go and complain to your parents they can go and complain to your teachers or your coaches or whatever it might be but certainly in my situation it was just sort of brushed off and and nothing was done and you know maybe the coach would pretend to have a word with such and such player you know cut it out you know behave yourself and and that's it little slap on the wrist and and let's move on in those situation it, it is like banging your head against a brick wall there there is there seems like there's no end game you're not going to ever solve this problem and you know as i keep saying hopefully as him speaking out and this story being so prominent leading the news bulletins in the UK uh, in recent times will go on to change that but yeah people need to realize exactly what offense is being caused by using the p word by by making racial slurs by using the n word by even if you're sexist or homophobic or whatever it might be all this kind of abuse that people receive the abusers can give it out they can just brush it off they can go home have a good night's sleep not knowing that the person they've abused 20 years down the line will still remember how hurt they felt when you said that yeah that all really tallies with me what you were saying there about dressing rooms right i mean i'm sure i was part of dressing rooms when i was younger where there was racial abuse dished out i can think of one quite prominent example about six years ago where an asian kid came to my club this was in melbourne i should say not in the uk maybe six or seven years ago now and he was only there about four months i mean the profound teasing of this kid and you can call it nothing but in hindsight racist abuse but on the lower level it was like that microaggression level which meant he didn't feel comfortable at the club and he was gone within half a season. I could have intervened. I could have stepped up and said, this is bullshit. But it's easier in a dressing room situation to turn the other cheek, isn't it? And I wonder whether this might be the lasting legacy of what's happened yesterday. Azeem making that point around Joe Root, saying, look, he's, a, he's someone he respects, a good guy, a good leader. Um, and even if someone like Joe Root has been able to not process that, abuse that he was receiving through that stretch of time when he was a a Yorkshire player. By that, I mean playing regularly with Yorkshire and not, not so much with England when Wazim was at the club. That, that That's a lesson I think a lot of white cricketers can take from this, that yes, dressing rooms can be a nasty place. They can be full of bullying and yeah, piss-taking that goes too far um, and teasing. And I'm sure that's the same up and down the nation, no matter what country you're playing cricket in. But when it comes to the, the racist component of this, that when it starts to seed into a dressing room culture, that white people might be more aware of it and more willing to put their head above the parapet rather than leaving it uh, to the poor person on the other end of the abuse to have to wear that burden alone. Um, just that, that example you give there with that Asian player coming to your club, yeah. would there have been other Asian players in that dressing room? Or? Well, well the, 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 yes, there, there was in, okay. in my club. I just remember... I have quite strong recollections of feeling very uncomfortable about what was happening to this yeah. particular guy yeah. and not, for whatever reason, not taking it upon myself at the time um, to to stand up for him. And I regret that. I've, I've regretted it for years. I should have had more backbone about me at the time. But whether I was busy or distracted or whatever else, and it wasn't long before it was too late, You're a very talented young spin bowler who's probably 19 or 20. And look, and again, I, I don't want to put myself inside the story, but all I'm saying is, is that this is a very relatable thing that Azim was saying yesterday about Joe Root. Because I think if you step back and reflect upon it as a white cricketer, how could you be naive? 
to what you've been privy to without necessarily processing it at the time, just due to the way that dressing rooms can be and how easily it can it can wade into this dreadful water. So one thing, look, um, we talked about a bit earlier was having the representat- representation of players, but it, it's it's not just in terms of players. Like I'm sort of imagining a young kid, Asian kid, coming through. You know, it could be just a local cricket club, yeah. but an academy as well. So, so I spoke a year ago, I spoke to, to Tom Fletcher, who's an academic, who's actually been mentioned in, in the news, you know, today. And, yeah. and he's done great work in terms of trying to pin down this, this culture of, of Yorkshire cricket, where you have a culture of, of otherness. And I spoke to him last year and, and I've, got it, I've got it in front of me. And he talks about, you know, there, could, there, there may well be Asian cricketers coming through that system, but this is what he said. He said, my worry is that while they might get through to the system at a certain level, the system then doesn't know how to handle them. That's not to say they're more difficult than other groups, but they're, they're probably different to what people who are coaching them are used to. So the key thing is there that you have to have a more diverse coaching environment. You need people in that dressing room who understand these players, who are of a similar background to them. I think that's that's a key point of this argument there. Like you said there, it's important for everyone to stand up and say, look, this is not okay. But it's definitely, it, it would be easier for that young kid who's coming through to also see people who are of similar background to him and for those people to then stand up as well. And so that's why... The key thing here is not just about having more representation on a playing level. It's about having more representation on a coaching level and, and all the levels above. Mm. It can't just be reflected at one level, mm. you know. And and if you think about it, a player, a young player coming through, that's you know they're the most, you know, that's something precocious. There's pressure. You need to you need to really take care of them, basically, right, for them to get through to that system. And so then it becomes very important for the levels above to be represented as well. Taha, one of the major concerns is that I think this particularly as white people being somewhat removed from this you know it doesn't affect us directly is that we have an optimism problem I reckon something like a story like this happens the testimony gets heard we see it all as very cathartic we go oh good well I'm glad that's been said now that's all been brought out in the open and everything will be fine from now on as Ian Rafiq was saying there are plenty of players who've been in contact with him but a lot of them are younger players they're towards the start of their careers they don't want to speak out because they don't they've still got something to lose he doesn't he's free to speak his mind because uh, whatever opportunities he might have had have been lost to him others don't have that problem but seeing it as now everything's come out in the open, it will be okay. It's it's kind of soothing, but it's bullshit as well. It, the, the problem doesn't go away just on being called out here. It, it doesn't stop here. There's, there's no reason why these kind of things won't continue or, or couldn't continue unless actual quite drastic interventions are, are made to change the way that, that, that people behave in an ongoing way rather than treating this as one thing or a historic thing, a sequence of events, and now it's all concluded, it's all nicely wrapped up and we can all go on with our lives feeling better about ourselves. Yeah, it's almost, it's interesting. It's almost, it's almost like a test for for whether this is more than a moment, where this is a transformational thing. It's, it's, it's a test to see whether, you know, like you said, Rafiq there, he's, he's out of the professional game. He's, he said it afterwards when he's got nothing to lose and, and he's accepted that, that he's not coming back. 
it's almost a test to see now if if you have current players or or young players who are just able and and willing and open and able to say to the public this is what I'm going through and so if those players come out and and talk about their experiences that for me would represent something different that that's not happened in the game before right because you you do have players come out after a career and and talk about their experiences before Rafiq Michael Carberry did it last mm. year you know we've seen it with Michael Holding and, and Ebony and and so are we now moving to a moment where where current players and and young players academy players you know they're just like they they outright say it you know that's it's it's almost a test really isn't it absolutely and and when you talk about the the, the sort of academy players as well that's that's the real test because they they have got everything to lose perhaps if you're a professional player if you're a key player in the first team of a county side they might not be able to afford to lose you. They they might, you know, take your concerns seriously. If you're an academy player, you are dispensable to them. They can get rid of you with a click of fingers, really, and, and it will make no difference to their setup uh, unless, you know, uh, unless they perhaps see you as the next Sachin Tendulkar or, or whoever it might be, unless you are that sort of outstanding player they have got a lot to lose by by speaking up so it will be interesting to see because not only have Yorkshire you know come up with this sort of whistleblowing hotline as they call it for anyone to to ring up and talk about the abuse that they're currently facing or have faced in the past at the club other clubs have done it as well last year have done it uh, there's, there's been several clubs uh, across the country the ECB say they're going to do something similar as well so uh, yeah it will be interesting to see if you know if there are any young players current players uh, who do speak up and uh, also if they wish to to come out publicly and say so as well because let's not make a mistake it does you know the, the Azim Rafiq story only came to light really because of the media because of people like yourself Taha and George Debell and and the sort of backing that he's had from the media to be able to tell his story. And, uh, you know, the the critics of this, uh, the, the deniers, uh, the people who don't think there's any sort of institutional racism will say, oh, well, you know, it's trial by media. He had no other option. So let's hope that these young players, uh, you know, coming up now, if they face any kind of problems, they don't have to go to the media to get themselves heard. They can be heard by their own clubs, by their own organisations, schools, teachers, whatever it might be. And the problem can be solved there and then because um, that, that is when we will be making real progress. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's really well put. In farewelling the two of you today, I congratulate you on your work and what you've been able to achieve as journalists when covering Azim Rafiq's story. It, it couldn't have been easy. Uh, in particular, our gratitude for having this long conversation with our audience here today on The Final Word. In the aftermath of what will hopefully end up going down as one of the most important interventions in the modern history of English cricket. Thanks, mate. Thanks. Thanks, thanks guys. Thanks, guys. Hi, my name's Kate Cross, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. Final Word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Thanks again to Taha and Nikesh for being such giving guests. You know, Nikesh mentioned it at the end, but, you know, having no time limit on an interview like that. In fact, he mentioned it after we turned off the tape that... A lot of our friends who work in the cricket media have been doing loads of interviews around this and it can be kind of hard to capture what's wrong with uh, race relations inside cricket in the space of a soundbite over a four or five minute interview. But 
I, yeah, I think that's why it was so nice to have uh, those two fine journalists on our program to give some thoughtful and detailed answers. I think we're very fortunate that we work with a lot of um, really dedicated people with a lot of integrity um, and it, it, yeah, it's a privilege really to to be able to work alongside these people and hear what they have to say and, and bring that to a wider audience as well. So thanks to both of them for uh, spending so much time with us. And also it can be quite exhausting if you are Taha or Nikesh who are receiving, I mean, without labouring the point, they are getting peppered uh, with requests to do these radio and TV spots all day long. And, you know, they do some of them, but they were both keen to come and talk to us because they know that we able, are able to give them that space and, yeah, thanks to them for, for making it all possible. Just as a sort of thought that I had when we finished up on, on this, Jeff, which, you know, I sort of inserted myself in the story there and I didn't mean to, but just my own experience of seeing it up front in Australian cricket recently, and there are loads of examples of racism in Australian cricket, by the way, both on and off the field. I've seen some revolting stuff off the field, even indeed within the cricket media, which just, you know, floats on by, floats on by because the path mm. of least resistance, right? And we've got to be better at that. We've got to be better at that. But dressing rooms, this idea that dressing rooms bring out the worst in people and the, mm-hmm. and the adversarial sport is part of that as well. I don't think we should sort of skip over that point. Sure, cricket's part of the broader community and racism's a community and societal problem. Uh, I just wonder whether it's more acute in sport and in cricket and we need to be mindful of that mm. point too, that there is this idea, you know, sitting around for hours and hours in dressing rooms, be it in professional teams or club teams, it's not an environment that's conducive to perhaps being your best self. I mean, it's very much about, like, it's it's particularly a masculine thing, you know, not to say it doesn't happen in women's sport. Uh, I'm sure there's some some pretty um, dire situations there as well, but it seems so much of it is about people's idea of what being a man means, and that it being being sensitive or being considerate is weak, and that being being tough, being is being a smart ass, is getting stuck into people, and it's all about you know good, clean masculine macho fun and when you're in a sporting environment that's also a place where you're supposed to be your most masculine self you're supposed to prove yourself physically on the field of combat and you put those two things together and that's that is the way it's likely to go and so that is how it'll go and until that idea that sort of terror there is this this absolute terror of not being a proper man not being the way that you think men are supposed to be and that if you're not, if you don't act like that, you'll be found out by those around you and they'll realise that you don't really belong there um, and they'll turn on you and they'll savage you. So you have to be as much of a prick as possible so that everybody will recognise that you're a proper man. It's a recipe for emotional stunting and it's like so much of that idea about what a man is supposed to be is about, it's just a list of things you're not allowed to do. It's all about you, you can't do this, you can't like that, you can't wear that, you can't eat that, you can't drink that. There's nothing positive in it. There's nothing about what you should be, what you are allowed to do. It's all about the things that are prohibited to you. And so that's where the root of so much of this stuff comes from, I think, and, and that's the part that really needs to change for anything else to change. That's really well put. And, and, I, and I kind of also was drawn to thinking about the Australian rules example in all of this. Now, to listeners who are not from south of the Brassy line, this may not mean an awful lot to you, but Aussie Rules had an absolutely dreadful relationship with Indigenous Australia, especially 
and I'm not saying it's perfect now, by the way, not at all, but it was acutely bad uh, through uh, the 70s and 80s when Aboriginal players started entering the big leagues, if you like. And then again, really, into the 90s. And there were some well-documented examples in the 90s. I'm thinking of uh, Damien Munkhorst and, and Michael Long, uh, for instance, where a light was shone on it and it forced people to take a t- to pay attention. And a club like Collingwood, for instance, who at the time uh, their president, Alan McAllister, responded to uh, that in a way that was, well, kind of in keeping with what we've seen from Yorkshire, really, in, in recent months and across the course of the last year, basically saying it's all bullshit. Now... Again, I'll pick my words carefully here because Collingwood have not covered themselves in glory recently, far, far from it. But the game as a whole, uh, there has been this acceptance of Indigenous culture. There's been uh, an understanding that it needs to be celebrated. And I think that that has helped with some obvious, horrible examples to the contrary. But take it as a whole, uh, the game has made massive strides in terms of representation of Indigenous players, in terms of celebrating the culture that they come from, um, be it through rounds that are dedicated to Indigenous players and and beyond, um, jumpers that are worn. I think about my own club, Hawthorne. We did not have an Indigenous player ever play for Hawthorne or drafted to Hawthorne until 2000. You know, that exclusionary Mm. policy of drafting, was it implicit? institutional racism at Hawthorne at the time. Like, it's hard to say it wasn't. Why were other clubs selecting Aboriginal players and and my club wasn't? You press fast forward 10 years from then, not even 10 years, and there was half a dozen to 10 players with Aboriginal backgrounds on the list because they had a change in focus and that changed the conversation entirely. Now, I'm not saying that it's a copy-paste job from Australian rules, but there probably are some lessons there about what Mm. was done through that period between the mid-'90s and maybe the 15 years that followed, and where some of the, the bits that have actually worked can now be retrofitted to, to English cricket, where there's clearly a problem that's of, of a similar substance. Yeah, and I mean, so much of it is about the demographics of the sport. Like, it's notable that in in a sport like Australian rules, where, say, the Indigenous population nationwide is, what, 2 to 3%, and... In on Aussie rules lists, it's been anywhere from nine to thirteen percent of the listed AFL players in the last sort of ten fifteen years, versus Australian cricket, where you can point to maybe half a dozen Indigenous players across the entirety of professional Australian cricket. You know, you know, there's a problem when you can easily name all of them. Like that's that's when it shows you that's where the issue is. And so, yeah, there's there's clearly an issue with massive underrepresentation of uh, British Asian players in cricket in the UK. That's something Azim Rafiq talked about a lot. You know, four percent of top listed professional players are, are English Asian or British Asian. When you know they're they're a much bigger percentage of the the sort of community playing ranks. So until you get more representation, you're going to still run into this idea that these sort of players are the outsiders, the exceptions, the unusual, and those are the people who get targeted. All right, Jeff, that, that might be where we leave it. I find it kind of just thinking when you were talking there, that, that's the third time we've basically done a full program this year on racism. I mean, I you know, we'll keep doing this. Uh, we'll keep doing it. And some people probably won't like it. That's fine. If you've listened to this They show. won't be listening to this bit of the show. Yeah, yeah they'll, 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 they'll have turned if, off. If they've heard the yeah. bit at the end. Yeah, yeah, that's true. They'll have turned off. And, and we got a bit of backlash last time as well when we had Vish coming on after the Ollie Robinson saga and when we spoke about uh, January 26th back at the start of the year. Uh, that, that prompted some backlash as well. And look, that's fine. People are entitled to their, to their opinions. But um, we're going to keep making shows like this uh, 
because we think it's important uh, and we're going to have guests like Taha and Nikesh on to tell their stories because we, we want to use our platform for that. So again, thank you to them. Thanks for everyone for listening. Thank you to uh, Brick Lane for their support of the show. To all of our patrons, patron.com forward slash the final word. If you are a patron, you'll receive a third discount on our live shows, Melbourne on the 13th of December at the Mission to Seafarers and the 14th of December at Unibar in Adelaide, TBC, uh, but coming up as well in Sydney on the 4th of January. Uh, this has been The Final Word. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon will be back uh, with story time on the weekend. Bye for now. So you know what I meant here. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall just for what I did well. And there's some stories I can tell you. Thanks for listening to The Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. Finalwordcricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at bricklanebrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.